Welcome to the Black and Brainy Podcast, an independent production weaving together modern psychology, ancient philosophy, and the experience of the African diaspora. We're your co-hosts, Dr. Laura Turner-Essel and Dr. Miriam Kadeba, two PhDs, members of the global Black community, and professionals striving to help our people thrive. Again, welcome, and here's our episode for today. Hello, Dr. Miriam. Good morning, Dr. Laura. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Um, I love that we're yep. already chuckling. <laughs> yeah, because I'm I'm just looking at your uh, cat ears. <laughs> your cat pants. Yes, well, we're recording this on Halloween and, you know, I had to put my little cat ears on and uh, yeah, happy Halloween, everyone. <laughs> yeah happy halloween if you're into that kind of thing i think i'm gonna be out there on the circuit today um by force my children are are dictating that um, i love it i love it for you and for the sugar yeah um but you know the things we do that's right for our little ones um but yeah so speaking of me being forced to do things i don't want to do Today's topic is freedom. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, <laughs> Look <so>. at that. <laughs> um, freedom and actualization. So two, I think, really important topics. And we're going to look at it today from a couple different perspectives. But um, I think that one of the things that comes to the top of my mind when I think about this is actually a story that you shared, Dr. Miriam, a couple episodes ago um, when we were talking about joy, um, Black joy as resistance. And actually, maybe that was just last episode, but there was a, a story that you shared that I wonder if you could share with the audience, because I think maybe it was something that we that didn't make it into the episode. But I thought it was a perfect illustration of Black joy, Black freedom, and how um, Black freedom actually helps to liberate everyone to experience joy. Do you remember? Yes, I do. I do. Uh, thank you so much for um, like allowing even the space for me to recount that. Um, but one of my really good friends, another psychologist, actually sent me this song for it was a Friday, like celebrating Friday-ness, right? And I was so excited about it. And I decided to just play it in the office. It was maybe 4.30 on a Friday afternoon. And instead of just sitting in front of my computer, I said, no, I'm just going to get up and dance. And whoever else would like to join me in the office, feel free. And it turned into this massive dance party. Everybody joined in, student workers, staff, myself, and... It be, it's become a recurring thing. Every Friday at around 4.30, I, all I have to say is, you know what time it is? And we all go off like, it's Friday then. And then we start just jamming and dancing. So thank you, Dr. Dan, for, for, that, for that song, because now it's just, it's a thing. We do Soul Train <laughs> lines and we just bump. It's amazing and truly freeing to be able to just dance and laugh and 
yeah and being community with one another I love that and because you're um in leadership in that office you actually been you know able to make that a part of the culture of the organization so you've actually kind of been able to say this is what we're doing like this is actually a part of our work culture now (laughs) so by doing that you free other people up to be able to take part in that and um you know, not obviously not forcing them to do it, right. but to say it's okay, it's acceptable to have fun at work, right? It's acceptable to kind of show different parts of yourself and to just relax and not feel like you have yes. to work up until, you know, five oh one on a Friday on a Friday. Evening. Like <laughs> you don't have to, you don't have to do that. So it kind of um, shifts, you know, a little bit of that. Um, Thank you for seeing the stiffness. Yeah, mm-hmm. that, I think that's really cool. So yeah, when we uh, when we have that joy, we have that freedom, we tend to extend it to others as well. So I think that's Indeed. really in line with what we're talking about today. So this idea of freedom, um, I, as always, we like to start out by just defining terms, right? Because this is something that, this is a word that gets thrown around a lot. And especially now we're having all these conversations in the media, and um, in political spaces and social spaces about people's individual freedoms and rights and um, having to do with whether it's the, the um, pandemic or, you know, school, you know, people talking about CRT and schools and um, mm-hmm. all these different conversations invoke this, this ideal, this concept of freedom, but do it in different ways. And usually both sides of an argument can still invoke this idea of freedom. (laughs) So I don't know that we're all talking about the same thing. Um, When I think about freedom, um, I think about it in a couple different ways. And actually this is what um, Merriam Webster has to say about it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Freedom as the power or right to act, speak or think as one wants without hindrance or restraint and the state of not being imprisoned, enslaved, or subject to domination. So I think that that's that's a pretty basic understanding um, that I think we can all get behind as far as freedom. But beyond that, um, philosophers have actually described two different types of freedom. So we can think of freedom as freedom from, which I think is what a lot of that definition that I just uh, shared with you is you know referencing so freedom from um enslavement freedom from domination freedom from restraint and this is liberation from any kind of restrictions that come from outside of yourself right or any obstacles that get in the way of you being able to do what you want to do so as individuals we could think about this if we're thinking about it developmentally in terms of developmental psychology we usually think of this coming up as we enter adolescence in our teenage years, we have this strong craving for freedom from rules, you know, freedom from having parents or guardians kind of limit where we go and what we do. So we kind of get this longing to be on our own and kind of dictate our own behavior. And then as adults, this is the type of freedom I think about if we find ourselves like stuck in a bad job, for instance, or like in a unhealthy relationship, we might want freedom from that, right? We might want to get out of that particular situation. So on the collective level, 
uh, we can think of this um, type of freedom being violated when we think about things like slavery, like colonization, like incarceration, all of these things right. that as a group, we tend to be negatively affected by um, these, these types of limits to our freedom right. as people. But then there's also freedom too. So that was freedom from, but freedom too is, a, is more about, um, okay, you're liberated from these external restraints or obstacles, but what are you liberated towards? So this is the freedom to control or direct our own lives. This is what allows a person to develop um, his or her own sense of purpose, set their own goals, kind of develop their own vision of what they want their life to be and make their own decisions in order to create the life that they want for themselves. So this is basically the freedom to master yourself as a person and to master your environment, right? So it's where we go beyond, you know, oh, look, I can do whatever I want. I have nobody stopping me. And we move into questioning, well, what do I want, right? What is it that I actually want to create or build for myself? And I think that this one is actually kind of a higher level if we have to think about them hierarchically as far as um, as we move through life and stages of development, uh, we get that freedom, right? We turn 18 or 21 or whatever, and we no longer have parents or guardians telling us where to go and when to come in or who to see. But then at some point mm -hmm. in our lives, we have to go, well, okay, but now what, right? Like, what <laughs> do I actually want to focus my time and energy towards? And we have to use discernment to evaluate whatever opportunities come our way, because we'll actually need to, at some point, start to impose limits on ourselves so that we can channel our time and energy into the direction that we want to go rather than just using our time and energy to pursue whatever feels good just because we can. So in a lot of ways, this type of freedom can actually be pretty terrifying <laughs> because it, it places a lot of the responsibility for our lives back on us. And um, if we navigate this properly, if we do it well, we can reach our full potential. But if we don't, um, we can actually end up, you know, kind of being losers in our own eyes because we, we are free to do whatever we want, but we end up squandering a lot of our time on things that don't ultimately matter to us. And so this is kind of the tricky thing about freedom too, is that it actually involves learning how to restrict ourselves in pretty strategic ways. So those are the kind of um, those are the kinds of freedoms that I think we can think about through our conversation today and look at how that applies to us both on an individual level and on a community level as Black folks, mm -hmm. as um, a global Black community. What does it really mean for us to be free? I think a lot of times we talk about freedom from because mm -hmm. we're focused on oppression and getting away from, you know, feeling controlled and exploited or um, discriminated against by other people and we want freedom from that um, and maybe um, we could spend more time on the freedom too and collectively visioning what we want our communities to look like what, what we want for our people um, and that that's always a good place to put our energy as well so one of the things at least on an individual 
level, but also on a collective level, that the freedom too can lead to is um, the fulfillment of our highest potential. That's actually the idea behind freedom too, is that once you are able to figure out how to direct your own time and energy and resources towards what you want, you shut down the energy that you're spending on things that don't matter to you. You focus all your energy on the things that do and you can reach your highest potential or your fullest potential. And that's um, another term for that is actualization. So um, self-actualization. And what's that, Dr. Miriam? Can you tell us about actualization? Yes, yes. Let's get into it because... Um, I really like the setup that you um, that you really gave leading up to um, at least trying to understand what actualization and self-actualization means, right? So um, for me, when I think of those, there's a couple of names of like prominent individuals that um, have written extensively and sort of um, have been associated with those terms. Um, so I'm thinking of Carl Rogers, I'm thinking of Abraham Maslow, and, and I think Maslow is a name that is oftentimes associated with self-actualization. Um, and that is being defined as the complete realization of one's potential and the full development of one's ability and appreciation for life, right? So Maslow talked about it um, sort of like what is located at the top of the hierarchy of needs that all humans um, need, I guess, to be able to lead a life where we can ultimately thrive. So reaching one's highest, fullest potential is oftentimes known as lead, uh, reaching this level of um, self-actualization. Right? So for them, um, the internal drive to self-actualize would, wouldn't necessarily emerge until all our other needs are taken care of, right? Like all our basic, basic needs, um, our needs for belonging, our needs for security. So they very much understood self-actualization as something that then um, takes place after everything else is um, taken care of. Um, I, I always find that very interesting to even conceptualizing the process of self-actualization for Black folks. Um, even with the statement that I just made, right? Like once all your needs are being met, your needs, uh, your basic human needs, your needs of belonging, your needs of safety, and then being able to reach self-actualization, that process is not necessarily one that like um, properly aligns for experiences of Black folks across the diaspora. So it always felt like it was something that was missing uh, when I learned about about self-actualization. It, it was just something that didn't quite click for me and my people. Um, mm -hmm. So this is, I mean, this is one of the reasons why we even wanted to bring it up, but also talk about how, again, it's to some extent, it's missing the mark in many ways and wanting to mm -hmm. explore um, how we understand freedom at the individual level and also at the collective level um, for Black people. It then sort of drives me to I guess our understanding of optimal theory, right? Like, can you say a little bit more about that? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I guess to, to back up a little, you're describing Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And in that hierarchy, like the little pyramid triangle thing, <laughs> self-actualization <laughs> is at the top, right? It's the highest right. level. Um, and 
so in his model, like you said, you get there by after you've reached um, or met all of these other basic biological needs and ego needs and all this stuff. But there's actually a lot of evidence that Maslow um, started to revise that theory after he spent some time with the Blackfoot Indian um, group in the, in the United States on their reservation. He was with them for six weeks and being there with them, he experienced, um, you know, their way of life. And I think that in their community at that time, at least the one where he was spending time, he described it as self-actualization being the norm, right? So in the way he had conceptualized it based on his kind of European <laughs> lens um, or Euro-American lens, self-actualization was this long-term goal that you spend your whole life trying to get to. And it's kind of the pinnacle. Um, but for them, you know, most of their community maintained high self-esteem like their whole lives people were believed to come into the world already wise already mm. capable already uh credible as human beings and so people treated one another with dignity and respect and you didn't have to spend all this time convincing other people um that you were worthy or you know having to earn those things like love and respect and dignity through some kind of achievement or through, you know, accomplishments or, you know, whatever. So rather than having self-actualization as the top level of their existence, they treated it as a baseline. So they used it as a launching pad. Um, you start there, right? <laughs> and you mm -hmm. have that already. And then you use that as a launching pad to kind of work towards more collective goals. So they had more of a group orientation or a collectivist orientation where they looked at community actualization as more of the pinnacle. Um, right. They they thought that, you know, making sure that everyone's basic needs were met, that everyone felt safe, that everyone had the conditions for, you know, expressing their purpose and living up to their full potential, that that was a community responsibility. So you know, you don't put that on the individual, you do that together. That's something that you work together to, to do. And ultimately what was at the top of their pyramid, I mean, they didn't conceptualize it as a pyramid, but if you had to map it out that way, um, what they would have at the top, what their ultimate goal was, was more like cultural um, perpetuity. So being able to pass on their way of life and preserve their culture and get, you know, pass that on to the next generation. That was at the top of their um, list of kind of missions in life for everyone. Mm -hmm. And so I, I know that Maslow wrote a lot about that perspective, um, but he didn't attempt to publicize, publicize it because probably, <laughs> especially at the time he was writing, um, he would have faced a lot of rejection amongst like his academic colleagues they were all very steeped in Eurocentric individualism, as you know, many are still today um, in this field. And he would have been unable to help them make that shift in worldview. But that worldview, that idea of you know self-actualization actually being the baseline, and then communal goals being more um, important to work on throughout your life, that's actually quite common in you know, a lot of indigenous nations, if not most indigenous nations, you know, throughout the Americas, um, throughout Africa, 
um, and, you know, parts of Asia. And so I think when you mentioned um, optimal theory, so that is Linda James Myers um, theory of optimal psychology, which I think we might have discussed in our first episode too. But um, yeah, if you read her work, she's a psychologist at uh, Ohio State, I believe. And if you get a chance Mm -hmm. to read her article, um, optimal conceptual theory, this this is an African-based, African-centered psychological perspective, which definitely contrasts that more individual-centered and pathology-oriented psychology of mainstream, like Euro-American Western um, thought. So in Linda James Meyer's work, she echoes like what I just said about the Blackfoot Indians that um, she feels like the root of individual wellness is found in communal wellness. So this idea of self-actualization that can only be achieved through the actualization of the collective. And so that means everybody's gotta be okay. Um, Like we can all only thrive individually if everyone is um, thriving and if anybody's still stuck in suffering, you know, or kind of stuck in bondage, none of us are really, really free, right? So again, that idea is prominent in a lot of indigenous psychologies, but definitely most um, indigenous African um, ethnic groups and, and nations, I would say, embodied that and lived that way um, until exposure to this more individualistic um, European rooted thinking. And so, so yeah, I, I really appreciate optimal um, psychology, optimal conceptual theory, because it takes that concept of, of self-actualization and really does bring it up a level. I think it makes us mm-hmm. aware that we don't, you know, we don't have to think of um, self-actualization as something that is just for us. You know, it's not, it's, it's not just this kind of self-absorbed pursuit um, that we're supposed to engage in, which I think is what gets sold to us a lot when you look at kind of pop psychology and self-help. Um, type stuff is really, really inward focusing, which is not necessarily bad. Um, I think introspection is very valuable, but also like at some point <laughs> you need to come out of that <laughs> and think about what's beyond, you know, your own kind of realization or uh, fulfillment, like what goes, what goes beyond that. Mm-hmm. I want to add something because like something that you said um, just now reminded me of um, some conversations that I've had with Dr. Spite and um, basically how um, she has summarized. I mean, I don't, I don't think that she has summarized. That's not how she's like using it to summarize optimal theory, but in some of our conversations, one, she said something that really stuck with me, which was, we already have everything that we need, right? And that, mm-hmm. that statement itself really um, stayed with me because when I think of how self-actualization is uh, defined and promoted again from that Eurocentric lens, it's sort of this thing that like you then reach or acquire along the way. Whereas the more collectivistic um, lens is ways or ways of understanding um, self-freedom is from the standpoint of we already 
we already have all those pieces inherently just by the sheer nature of who we are, right? Like just by the sheer nature of uh, being humans, whether it is a child, whether it is an elder, um, we already have the species and there's, it's not necessarily something to then reach, but mm-hmm. I guess through some of the conversation that we've even had in, in um, the previous episodes, it's about how do we then remind ourselves of the species that we already have, that society and the world spends so much time um, trying to cover or chip at it, right? So this, this notion of we already have everything that we need. Um, is really powerful to me when I think about freedom. Yeah, think about how differently each of us would live our lives if we (laughs) were raised with that perspective or, you know, encouraged and taught that perspective at a young age, just like you're good, you know, (laughs) like you're good. You don't have to prove it. You don't have to strive to, you know, and of course you still want to encourage growth and development. And yet, is there a way to do that without making people feel like they have to compensate or have have some kind of missing piece that they need to strive be constantly striving to fill in the gaps or you know make up for something I feel like so much of our um western culture is built upon and even just like our marketing right it's just Mm -hmm. built upon people making people feel less than making people feel somehow inadequate so that they will then be motivated to strive for something and which usually involves buying something or paying for some type of service or some kind of education or some kind of something, you know, product Mm -hmm. that's going to make them better. Um, So that gets exploited a lot. And, and I think that that's, again, that's kind of looking at it at both an individual level, but also a collective level because we run whole societies this way, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. Based on this definition of, what does it mean to self-actualize? Um, and and so one of the things I really appreciate, we often talk about Brother Amos Wilson, um, Dr. Amos Wilson, the, um, you know, really notable and accomplished uh, psychologist from New York, um, who unfortunately is an ancestor now, I think taken from us too soon, but he was brilliant and he had such a, a brilliant analysis of, so many of the conditions that um, our people face. And he looked at that from such a psychological perspective. Um, He talked a lot about this idea of freedom and how we define it. And so I have a quote here from him that says, why does the black man say freedom is doing what I want to do? When, you know, why is it that everything he wants to do enriches the European? So I think with that, you know, <laughs> Dr. Ooh. Wilson is reminding us that collectively, even our desires come to be shaped by oppression, right? They come to be shaped and manipulated by forces that are looking to oppress us and exploit us. And so again, until we, I mean, we can focus on freedom from, right? He's saying, why does the black man say, you know, freedom is doing what I want to do? Well, yeah, I mean, being unrestricted to do what you want to do, that's freedom from. But what he's saying here is until we learn how to redirect our desires into our own interests, we're always going to be controlled by those people that don't actually want the best for us. And they'll control us by conditioning us to desire things that make them wealthy, right? (laughs) That make them 
powerful that just further enrich them and at the same time destroy us right so things like you know you can kind of um inculcate in people a strong desire for alcohol for drugs for even for like gang culture you know the way that it gets promoted and advertised and glorified like in pop culture um for crime you know you can you can set people up to want these things for themselves that are actually harmful to them um even the consumption of you know (laughs) European name brands, you know, everybody talking about Louis Vuitton and Gucci and all this. Well, what happens when we go out and put all of our financial resources into consuming these things? It makes that community richer, you know? Um, It makes that society richer. It does not actually bring any wealth back into our community. So it actually depletes our resources and hands them over to another community. So again, it's this idea of like, how do we then practice freedom to um, shift our desires, uh, make ourselves want things that actually are good for us, take our energy away from wanting things and feeding, you know, desires that have kind of been manufactured in us that really don't do us any good and don't really um, meet our needs anyway, right? So, you know, he goes on to say, we are only free in this country to do the wrong things. We say freedom is being able to do what we want to do, but ask yourself, what makes you want to do a thing? Your wants and desires have been induced. What we want and desire is to maintain the system of domination uh, that destroys us as a people. So I, (laughs) I think like there's no better way to think about, you know, how that, you know, that, second form of freedom can really be sabotaged. It can really be um, upended if we're not careful and if we're not paying attention, we have to understand that we don't exist in a vacuum, right? We don't exist just as individuals floating around in society. We exist within a context of oppression and we exist within a context of a lot of anti-Black systems, you know? And so these things have been designed to get us to destroy ourselves, even when we think we're free. Mm-hmm. So that's why a lot of you know people talk about, well, slavery never really ended. You know, <laughs> it ended only in the physical sense. Um, but in a lot of ways, in our minds, we're still operating as, as if we're controlled um, by other people. So yeah, so I think that idea of self-actualization, we could think about that on a, on a community level too. What would it look like for Black people to wake up to the fact that we actually have all that we need already. We actually are fine just the way we are. We don't have to go, you know, get included and accepted by other people. We're good. And now what would we choose to do with our time and energy? What would we choose to create and build if we um, truly see ourselves as free people? What are we free to do? What are we free to be collectively? Yeah. I hope, I hope that, um, you know, these statements that you just made allow, um, you know, our listeners to reflect on that. Like, what are we free to do? And um, because I think that's really deep and something that warrants some space to be able to explore for, mm-hmm. for yourself. Yeah, it's something to reflect on. 
because I think we know we can think a lot about personal freedom um and that's important you know like freeing ourselves from unreasonable expectations freeing ourselves from toxic relationships like all of these things are really critical on an individual level um and they are a a form of freedom um but they're definitely collect connected to the collective freedom as well so yeah how do we free our communities from um unreasonable expectations um you know, that we will tolerate certain things or that we will simply wait for certain things instead of deciding to take it or make it for ourselves. How do we free our communities from toxic relationships? Um, Because, you know, oppression is a toxic relationship. It's a toxic way of relating to structures and systems of power, you know? And then how do we move our people toward the realization of our full potential? Amos Wilson was really... um, adamant that like our culture our heritage all of us collectively um you know across the african diaspora that is our wealth that is our power Mm -hmm. it is not a deficit it is not something that we need to compensate for it is actually it holds our potential and the more we move away from that trying to assimilate or trying to you know gain acceptance in other spaces from other communities the more we actually weaken ourselves because we're moving away from that which is our our power and that is our you know our inherent um you know africanness <laughs> our mm-hmm. essential you know like that and and that's more than just the color of our skin you know that is right. based in this um you know what we just described as this optimal theory this indigenous worldview that i think you know for many of us has been kind of bred out of us or kind of socialized Mm -hmm. out of us, but that which really does form the core of our deep African thought and our heritage that we need to get back to. So it's more a way of of thinking and a way of being in relation to other people and in relation to ourselves and the universe. That is, you know, um, what makes us African. And um, that's where we can find our actualization. Oh, that's deep. And, you know, when we were preparing for for this episode, one of the things that uh, we also wanted to do was to to go back a little bit to learn a little bit more about um, folks across the diaspora that have um, embodied what it is that we we just described, right? Like the sense of freedom and liberation from that um, toxic, oppressive relationship. Um, with systems of oppression and mm-hmm. you know before before touching base on those one of the things that we also wanted to highlight is that we are not historians so <laughs> yes <laughs> disclaimer 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 <laughs> we are not historians so we are not re- really over here trying to say that we're gonna give um, a comprehensive summary of those individuals and their life and important things that they were able to accomplish. But um, what we wanted to at least do is to, one, acknowledge that the fight for liberation and the fight for freedom is something that is not new and that has been taking place as long as Black people have have been here, right? Um, And in addition to that, there's been like several iterations and different ways that people have resisted. I think we've talked about Black joy as resistance in our previous episode. And then there's 
tons and tons of documented rebellions that have like led to freedom of our people throughout the year. So we wanted to touch just on a couple of those, um, recognizing that again, we will not be able to talk about all of them, but you know, the internet is available and we <laughs> certainly want to encourage y'all to, to use that search engine and um, read about these amazing individuals because they, there's really a lot of wisdom that we couldn't even begin to try to summarize here in one episode. So anything yeah. else that you would add? I think, you know, just kind of prefacing, you know, this by saying we're bringing these people up not to give biography, you know, biographies of them. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not like a book report, but we are just highlighting them as exemplars, right? Of people who embodied this idea of freedom and had a vision of actualization for our people, I think. And for many of them, they were scholars, you know, they had their own writings, uh, much like Dr. Amos Wilson, they were prolific um, writers and thinkers. And so you should go look them up. You should go read their original um, works or read about their lives or learn about their lives. But what we want to highlight is their relationship to this concept of freedom, the way they thought about it, the way they held that vision for us as a people, and maybe how they um, had it manifest in their work. I think that's kind of our angle is just looking at how they took this somewhat abstract, easily manipulable concept of freedom and actually made it concrete for people and built movements around that. And that's really powerful to be able to do that so I think that's why we thought we'd just give you a few um, real life examples of people who who lived this idea would you like to get started well I'll start off I think um, I definitely wanted to you know represent uh, Ghana GH a little bit you know (laughs) yes Uh, I don't know if I've mentioned it before, but my husband hails from, you know, the Gold Coast, the Ghana. And um, so, of course, I have to represent. He would be so <laughs> upset if I didn't talk about um, <laughs> the Honorable Kwame Nkrumah. Um, and so Kwame Nkrumah, um, first of all, he um, has these awesome quotes that I actually have up on my wall. Um, that I think, you know, are just guiding ideas for this idea of freedom. And so one of the things he said was, it is far better to be free to govern or misgovern yourself than to be governed by anybody else. So listen, y'all. Come on. (laughs) A lot of times when we think about um, or when we hear people talk about the African continent, and politics and governments there, um, it's always linked to corruption. It's always linked to this subtle idea that like African people can't be in charge of themselves because they'll mess it up, right? So this is one of the stereotypes that we hear kind of discouraging us from trusting each other to be in charge of ourselves, right? Um, but Kwame Nkrumah, and maybe, you know, that's there's a corruption in governments all over the world, but this is something that gets tied to Africa a lot. Kwame Nkrumah said, it is better to misgovern yourself (laughs) than to be governed by anybody else. So he's like, I don't even care if we jack it up. 
we'll learn from that, right? And we'll still come out better than right. letting other people be in charge of our land and our resources and our and our policies. So that was one thing he said. Another thing, because um, so for those who may may not know or be familiar with Kwame Nkrumah, he was a Ghanaian politician. He was a political theorist. And he was a revolutionary, right? He was the first prime minister and president of Ghana, West Africa. Um, they were originally called the Gold Coast. Well, not originally, but um, they were given the name Gold Coast by their British colonizers. Um, but when they became independent and fought for their freedom from Britain uh, in 1957, they changed their name to Ghana. So that's uh, modern day Ghana. And so he was the first president of Ghana because he had helped to lead them to independence. And so he was also a very influential man and advocate of Pan-Africanism. He was the founding member of the Organization of African Unity. And so one of the things that he said was the independence of Ghana is meaningless unless it is linked up with the total liberation of the African continent. Again, going back to that optimal psychological idea, you know, if I'm not, if we're not all free, Ain't none of us free, right? <laughs> we we need to all be able to achieve actualization to really say that we've accomplished something. So not only did he get his own land free, he was instrumental in influencing and helping other African nations that soon followed behind Ghana in achieving uh, liberation from European colonization. Um, so, you know, he had studied abroad. He pursued higher education in Europe and the United States. He developed a political philosophy. He organized with other Pan-Africanists throughout the diaspora. And then he went home and began his political career. So this idea that, you know, he left home to go pursue these ideas, but he brought his education back and decided to apply it right in his homeland. He decided to not take his, um, you know, his time and his energy and go work in some corporation or some university <laughs> abroad, but to go back home um, and to figure right. out how to free his people back home. And he started, you know, agitating and advocating for national independence there where he formed the convention People's Party. Um, that party appealed to the common voters. So they really went out and um, were interested in getting the average um, you know, Ghanaian involved in the political process. And he also recognized the great wealth that they had um, at their feet in the Gold Coast. Um, obviously they had gold <laughs> and a ton of other natural resources <laughs> um, that the Europeans were interested in exploiting. And he felt that those resources should not be controlled and exploited by outside forces, that they were... Um, they were the property of, of the African people and that it should be the African people that benefit from them. So, um, you know, he, in his administration, so he had a primarily socialist administration, the reason why, and a nationalist socialist uh, administration, but he felt that um, national resources should be, you know, shared, collective. You know, he had a collectivist orientation. So he set up a, a strong national education system. He promoted the Pan-Africanist culture. And um, of course, you know, under his rulership, Ghana played a leading role in African international relations during that whole period of decolonization. So again, this um, 
this idea of freeing themselves from British rule and then being free to then help achieve communal actualization with other African nations who wanted to be free from European rule. So, so in that way, I think that he really embodies and um, is a good example of that both freedom from and freedom to. And then finally, uh, another last quote from him, freedom is not something that one people can bestow on another as a gift. They claim it as their own and none can keep it from them. So we don't need to beg anybody for our freedom, right? <laughs> we, we take our freedom and we keep it. It's ours, you know, nobody can take that from you once you have claimed it. And so there's, uh, Mr. Nkrumah, who you got for us? Period. Period. <laughs> Just yes, yes, and yes. Uh, oh, and yes, he has yeah, no, no, a number like... of speeches online <laughs> and, and, you know, books he's written and, and things that he's, um, you know, he was, a, he was a thinker. He was a scholar as well as a theorist yeah. and as well as a politician. So you can find his work and you can read more about his perspective. And don't let the S word scare you. Yes, he was a self-proclaimed socialist. Let's stop acting like we're scared of that word. Okay. <laughs> so, right. Please look into please what that means read. for him. Yeah, look into what that means in an African context, again, because socialism in Europe was different than socialism in Africa as well. So let's, let's be open to that idea. Precisely. So thank you for that. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of overlap with um, who I, I chose to highlight uh, around what you shared. Um, but I chose to highlight Thomas Sankara and mm-hmm. for, for personal reasons. One, because I am a proud citizen of Burkina Faso. Um, that's right, that's right. We're representing West <laughs> Africa here. <laughs> Proud got to start with the motherland. <laughs> I mean, come on, come. We we got to And thinking about just the impact that this individual has had around really wanting to uplift his country and his community gives me goosebumps, right? And and I found myself one feeling some sadness around like learning some things around that because even as a citizen of Burkina Faso, there's still so much that I was not aware of because it's not like they teach that he's that kind of history to us. Um, And it really takes like your own personal interest and willingness to go, to go learn those pieces, which, you know, let me not go down that tangent. That's so far a whole other conversation, but so Thomas Sankara um, was, I mean, he was the first, the first president of Burkina Faso. At the time, it was actually named Haute um, Volta, which is, uh, which, which translates to Upper Volta, and that was the colonial name that was given to to Burkina Faso. So when he came to power in Anoko in 1983, one of the first things that he did was actually change the name of the country from Upper Volta, from Haute Volta to Burkina Faso. And Burkina Faso means Pays des Hommes Intègres, which is translated to land of incorruptible people. Mm. There's something about even saying Pays des Hommes Intègres that just brings a sense of pride. I mean, I have goosebumps even just naming that, right? 
and to be reminded that this is where it came from, from this individual who was really set on um, allowing us to reach as a community to reach our full potential and also severing our ties to, um, to imperialistic structures was really at the core of what he wanted to do. So one of the first things that he did was around prioritizing education and land reform because it was really key around, we need to educate our children. We need to take care of our communities or of our families. We need to address famine and address um, reforestation in really allowing us to be self-sufficient and not needing foreign aid. So severed a lot of ties with um, foreign European um, countries refusing aid and instead trying to foster what was locally available. Um, mm -hmm. He also took a big public health stance around, again, supporting um, the health of Burkina right, of, of the citizens. So um, lots and lots of vaccination campaigns. Um, the mortality rate dropped for children, dropped severely during um, the time where he was, he was in the presidency. And then one of the main things that I also wanted to highlight that he took a very strong approach to um, the freedom and liberation of women. And mm. yeah, so dur during that time, he, he really focused on women's rights. He banned uh, female genital mut mutilation, then forced marriage, and was very adamant around appointing a lot of women to political and governmental roles. Um, so to, to read on it and to even think about the intentionality around incorporating women as part of, um, right, like the structure of the country um, was really powerful. And I wanted to, to, to read some of the no notable quotes. So one of them is, comrades, there is no true social revolution without the liberation of women. May my eyes never see and my feet never take me to a society where half the people are held in silence. I hear the war of women's silence. I sense the rumble of their storm and feel the fury of their revolt. Mm. Right. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yes, that was powerful. Powerful that like how much really wanting to center liberation and freedom around also the liberation and freedom of women. Um, so and you can imagine, yeah. right? And you can imagine how that stance was controversial and really uh, created a lot of um, adversaries um, around that. Um, something else that he said that was related to um, again, severing ties to, I mean, taking that pretty anti-imperialistic uh, stance, he said, he would feeds you, controls you. Mm. Mm, that's another, that's yes. another thing <laughs> that feels Absolutely. really, 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 really relevant, really deep. And, and I think um, was forefront around the decisions that he made politically around fostering what is locally available and to, give folks back agency and autonomy 
to care for themselves, to feed themselves, to craft a society that matches the vision that of freedom that they have for themselves rather than the ones that the Europeans, colo colonial folks had for mm -hmm. us. Um, so it really meant a lot to hear, to, to read, to read about him. Um, and yes. he was assassinated in um, 1987. And, and actually part of his trial and um, like, I mean, it, it's ongoing. Actually, there's been a lot of movement over the past few years around uh, bringing folks to, to trial for orchestrating a coup leading to his assassination. And it's still ongoing. Um, um, and I think that speaks to even the impact and how much of a threat he posed because of how adamant he was about the freedom of his people. Mm -hmm. Wow, absolutely. And thank you for highlighting his, his life and his work because I feel like that's a name we don't hear a lot. Um, even during our little Black History Month, you know, <laughs> program, right? You know, often give you know give credit due to some of these brilliant um, military and political leaders um, from the continent and from the diaspora. I think a lot of um, the and then the the two people we've just highlighted. And then this third person I'm going to talk about, a lot of these folks um, influence one another, you know, because when you shine that brilliantly and you are that committed and you do that much good work in your community, even if you're taken out early, which a lot of these guys are sabotaged and taken out early, um, that, ring, that work rings on. It resonates with people and you end up influencing so many people because we all have this inner calling this inner spark that wants that freedom, right? And so um, as people, we get behind those that we see um, have a vision and have that, um, that dedication to the cause. So I wanna talk about Marcus Mosiah Garvey, um, who, you know, even if we don't know exactly what he did or who he was, I hope that the name rings familiar. <laughs> Um, a lot of us fly the yes. flag that he uh, developed, um, the mm -hmm. red, black, and green that, you know, um, represents, you know, the, um, the African-American experience, but also the Pan-Africanist um, experience. He was a Jamaican-born Black nationalist and leader of the Pan-African movement. Um, his goal in life, his purpose was to unify and connect people of African descent worldwide. So he did that in the United States. He was known as a, a prominent civil rights activist. He founded the Negro World newspaper. He founded a shipping company called the Black Star Line. And uh, probably most importantly, the Universal Negro Improvement Association, which was a fraternal organization of black nationalists. So um, as a group, UNIA advocated for this idea of separate but equal. Um, so they had what we call a separatist agenda, right? And they wanted to be independent. They wanted freedom from, <laughs> right? Um, you know, colonization, freedom from the oppressive forces of, of white domination all over the world. And they wanted to establish independent black states around the world, particularly in Liberia on the West coast of Africa. Um, he was so influential, he was so prominent um, that you know, people named a movement after him, you know, people that followed his school of thought 
were Garveyites. Um, he, he was the leader of Garveyism. And around the height of the UNIA organization, they boasted 2 million followers around the world with 25 chapters in the U.S. and divisions in the West Indies, Central America, and West Africa. Um, so you said something a minute ago about Sankara saying, you know, he who feeds you controls you or something, right? So I think that that was definitely the, the state of mind that Garvey embodied as well. He was very committed to the belief that Black people need to secure financial independence from white dominant society. And in that vein, he launched many businesses in the U.S., including the Negro Factories Corporation. I already mentioned the Negro World Newspaper. Um, and then people within his organization, some of those, many of those uh, two million followers of the UNIA also launched businesses. So this was kind of not a mandate, but a strong encouragement from the organization to, you know, um, found black businesses and to become like controllers of the wealth within our community. And so many, many businesses were spawned from people's involvement with the UNIA and their strong belief that financial independence was going to be a way towards liberation um, for black people. Um, and so you know, the Black Star Line that um, Marcus Garvey was the president of, this was designed to forge a link between North America and Africa and facilitate um, the African-American migration to West Africa. So, you know, we can, I won't go into kind of how that got sabotaged and how, um, how that whole debacle ended, you can read about that for yourself. But I think, again, just looking at the, um, the intention and the vision that he held that he was going to literally build the way back for people to have this connection and to have this, um, you know, freedom to return to Africa, if they chose and to build for themselves, um, you know, sovereignty, really. He said, liberate the minds of men and ultimately you will liberate the bodies of men. So he really focused on empowerment, on psychological empowerment, on mental freedom. He focused on helping people just see the freedom that they already had and the, and the wealth and the genius that they already had to create the lives that they wanted. And if you are a fan of Bob Marley, you'll recognize this, uh, <laughs> this other quote from Marcus Garvey, which says, we are going to emancipate ourselves from mental slavery because while others might free the body, none but ourselves can free the mind. Mind is your only ruler, sovereign. The man who is not able to develop and use his mind is bound to be the slave of the other man who uses his mind. So I think Garvey um, fully understood that you know, the resources were there. As we said a couple times already, Black people are rich, right? <laughs> like we are wealthy people um, on the continent of Africa. We don't even have to talk about that, how many like resources are literally right at, at the feet of the people um, on the continent. But even across the diaspora, we are an asset in terms of our, um, our, our creativity, our, you know, just intellectual, and spiritual, um, not to mention physical resources. We bring 
just as we, you know, started off this hour saying we bring joy and freedom to other people. We bring wealth to other people all the time, right? Mm-hmm. Um, through our through our hard work, our labor, our just ability to create and to and to manifest. Um, but if we don't have our minds free, we end up allowing those natural resources to be used and exploited by other people instead of being used in our best interest. And so I think um, you know, Garvey fully understood that and was really about getting people to use their resources for themselves and to control the mind um, in such a way that we could see that power that we held and really, you know, capitalize on it for ourselves. Well, I, and as, as Black psychologists, I mean, what better way to, for like, for us to connect to the message, right? Like that was one of the main things that um, that we that we really try to make sense of, but also wanted to highlight even um, in this conversation because that it was one of um, of the threads that um, that we utilized to at least to make sense around movements of freedom and um, and rebellion. Um, throughout throughout the diaspora, we also are well aware that even the examples that we use were were certainly not, um, as we mentioned earlier, like comprehensive, right? So we've talked about some folks on um, continental Africa, and then we talked about Garvey here in the U.S. and wanted to also mention um, Haiti as another. Um, very important, um, I don't even know how to, to classify it, but just very important element of um, Black freedom and Black liberation across the diaspora, um, going all the way from, uh, all the way to, to Saint Louverture um, in Haiti, who was, um, really the name that is oftentimes recognized and associated with um, Haitian liberation and Haitian freedom from colonial forces. So um, um, Toussaint Louverture being um, the Haitian general and um, really he was born and enslaved on the island of Saint-Domingue, which was the colonial name that was given to Haiti, I think similarly to Burkina Faso, right? Like um, those, those pieces of land of places where folks had been living, existing, thriving, uh, were then colonized and renamed. And a lot of individuals in the process of reclaiming their freedom um, were like, it's important for us to also name ourselves and not go by the name that was provided to us by our oppressor, by our colonizer. So became a free man and engaged um, as part of the military and led a lot of rebellion efforts to to free Saint-Domingue because it was just essential to be able to to freeze people. Um, Similarly to the the folks that we mentioned, Louverture was also very concerned with the economical freedom of his people of the island and all the ways the resources were being depleted while 
citizens were struggling, were struggling to have access to their basic needs. So it was really important to then figure out how to, to come together to be able to resist. Um, in one of the famous speeches that he had mentioned in, in 1793, he said, brothers and friends, I am Toussaint Louverture. Perhaps my name has made itself known to you. I have undertaken vengeance. I want liberty and equality to reign in Saint-Domingue. I am working to make that happen. Unite yourselves to us, brothers, and fight with us for the same cause. Your very humble and obedient servants. Powerful words. Mm -hmm. I mean, so powerful, right? And even the, the stance around your humble and obedient servants, right? Like I am here to serve my people and here to aid in our liberation. So powerful. So you can see how um, as a charismatic individual that was also, I mean, basically writing for its people, you can see how it was gaining um, more accolade and more support from, um, from citizens of Saint-Domingue. And you can then see how France and allies were uh, feeling threatened in many ways through feeling threatened then thinking about ways that um, it could be, he could be sabotaged, right? Sabotage, hurt, eliminated, because that tended to be uh, the process with which, oh, this person is starting to be a troublemaker. We need to take care of them, right? Mm -hmm. um, and actually Louverture was imprisoned in France and died in 1803. So did not see, did not see the freedom of Haiti. Um, those efforts ended up um, at least like building the bill, like creating the building blocks for, for freedom and independence to take place. But that happened after he died um, and he mm -hmm. died during his imprisonment. Yeah. Wow. Powerful. And yeah, I feel like we can't talk about um, Black freedom and liberation without talking about Haiti as just an exemplar and not just uh, L'Ouverture, but also Desalines and a lot of the women too, like Auntie Toya, yes. and, um, you know, just, yeah, such a powerful collective vision. And like you said, not something that was even achieved in the lifetime of the person who maybe is the, you know, at the forefront, but they made it um, such a shared vision that everyone was working towards that um, and were able to achieve it you know, even though he had passed, at least other people carried it forward and carried it on um, for the good of the, the whole. And so, yeah, I love that. So we've highlighted these things. Um, I know, you know, we, we need to wrap up, but I just want to say that, um, <laughs> I just want to say that, you know, there's a ton of other examples we could give. I know that we obviously haven't even attempted to cover um, a full scope of, you know, powerful movements and individuals that have embodied this concept of freedom and black liberation. But um, obviously you can do your own research and I would just encourage all of our listeners to think about contemporary movements because obviously we've highlighted some historical figures here and some really groundbreaking events and organizations and things like that. But 
you know, time hasn't stood still. We're still in this struggle. And there are people that even today have carried forward the vision of not only these people, but other liberators um, from our community across the diaspora. So think about some modern movements that maybe you're involved in or you've heard of, things like Black Lives Matter. Um, I know in the a while ago, the NSARS movement in Nigeria um, was really big and, and making a lot of traction across social media. I followed that for a while, but think about these different movements um, and things that people are doing to achieve their definition of freedom and how do they define freedom? When you think about those movements, when you look at those movements, how are they defining freedom and how are they directing people to work towards it? Is it similar to these people that we've talked about and historical movements that we've seen or is it different? Do we have kind of new um, visions or new ideas of what it means to be free? Right. And, and, you know, I, I also wanted to, to say, and because you pointed it out um, when we were just touching base um, and talking about Haiti, like you mentioned um, a lot of women, Black women that were part mm -hmm. of uh, liberation movement. And oftentimes when we think about this movement, narratives of Black women um, do not get discussed enough, right? Not only there's a lot of conversation, um, a, a lot around freedom and liberation throughout the diaspora that does not get uh, mentioned or taught, um, but even with that, there are layers, right? Like, so I think about the experiences of Black women or the experience of queer Black folks uh, who have continued and continue to put a lot of effort into um, freeing their community. So as you are encouraging our listeners to, to do their own work and, um, and learn about these wonderful individuals, I would very much encourage um, everyone to, to utilize another inter an intersectional lens in really thinking about the experiences of Black folks across the diaspora to learn around, to learn more about freedom and what freedom means from, the, from that standpoint. Yes, absolutely. And I think the last thing we want to just say is um, to acknowledge that there's an emotional component here. Um, we keep telling <laughs> you all to go look these things up and follow, you know, the work of these people and immerse yourself in this kind of philosophical, um, you know, work and think about how it applies to your life and, and to our whole community. But when you do that, I think even we've been doing this work for a long time and studying a lot of these things for a long time. And we even noticed ourselves having really strong emotional reactions to just reviewing and compiling and rereading over some of the um, lives of these people and the work of these people and just being reminded again of the traumas as we've discussed in the previous episode of what our people have been through on a grand scale. And when you look at the accounts of these individual lives, you'll see themes of just, you know, violence and sabotage and um, betrayal and the pain that just comes with existing under duress. I mean, under oppression, these people were fighting for freedom because it was being denied them. And so witnessing that as someone who studies um, black history 
um, I think can come with its own emotional weight. It takes a toll. And, you know, Miriam, I know you mentioned that for you, a lot of anger came up, um, a sense of rage and just looking over like what people had to go through, how people were um, just denied opportunities and, you know, just treat it. And I think for me, I get inspired looking at the work that our people have done, but I also understand um, how risky it is, how much of a threat it is when you are talking about dismantling a hierarchy that's been in place for centuries and that that often results in the loss of life. You know, these people are often, like we said earlier, taken out. And so that's scary. It can be daunting and it can be hard to think about, well, how do I follow in the footsteps or how do I you know, honor the legacy of these people when there's so much, it's overwhelming, you know, it's, it's overwhelming to think about what we're up against and to think about what they were up against and how it's still ongoing. So we just acknowledge that. And as psychologists or as mental health, <laughs> um, you know, uh, people in the mental health world, we want to see more containers or spaces for people to process this because it is emotionally taxing. It's not just an intellectual exercise. You know, maybe other people who do this stuff as an intellectual exercise can just dispassionately read about it and write a paper about it and talk about it. But I think for most of us who are identified with the African diaspora and see our own struggles in our own lives and the work of these folks, um, you know, it, it can be very disheartening. It can be very upsetting in different ways. And so let's support one another. Um, and, you know, let's remember that part of the transformative potential of this freedom work and this struggle for black freedom, um, it comes from us being able to process it with our hearts and not just our heads, all right? Um, mm -hmm. And so let's do that and let's be willing to deal with the feelings that come up and to share with one another, um, you know, how do we tackle those? How do we address those and care for one another um, as we are engaging in this study? Yes, the process of consciousness raising is one that is such an emotional journey. And um, I just love what you said around um, like orienting ourselves through it with our hearts and not just our mind. Um, and as I was preparing for this and reading just more information about Burkina Faso, I mean, I was I was transported back just this summer when I was on an African soil, right? Like I was able to be in Burkina Faso um, for the first time in over 20 years. And that was a really powerful experience. So to be able to bring that energy just a couple of months ago to learning more about um, my history and then contextualizing that right now around my existence and the choices that I'm making around the life that I'm leading and how I can myself continue to be in community to help uh, to move towards freedom or to continue to enact some of the vision that Sankara had for Burkina Faso. I mean, it's, it's, it's powerful. I can't, yeah, I, I could just continue to be in my fields here all the time, but I think <laughs> I think I think it illustrates the very thing that you just shared, right? Like this yeah. is an emotional 
process and right. we hope that that's this is one of That's how we know it's of... working. Precisely. Precisely. Yeah, that's how we know it's working is when it is when you get in your feelings, you really actually feeling it, right? That's the phrase yes. that we use, like you're feeling it. <laughs> you're and feeling it's it. Actually, it's actually moving and stirring something inside of you instead of just being something that you can, you know, recite, recite from memory or whatever, you know. I love that. I did too. Well, and you. as always, I was just going to say, as always, like I'm so grateful for the space that we're able to create to be able to even try to um, detangle some of this. So thank you. Yay. Well, um, another great conversation and we hope that our listeners will um, engage with it as well. Let us know what are ways that you um, process, you know, your, your consciousness raising and what are the resources that you tap into around you or within you to be able to um, think about this idea of freedom and to achieve actualization. How do we get there together? Mm -hmm. Well, from Dr. Laura and Dr. Miriam, thanks for joining us for another episode of the Black and Brainy podcast. And we look forward to another great conversation next time. Dr. Miriam, thank you so much. Always a pleasure, Dr. Laura. Bye, everyone. Take care. <laughs>